Dr. Prakash Chakravarti, your company connects machines in the plant floor to executives in the boardroom and work with dozens of companies around the world. Is there one whose story seems to especially resonate? Yes. And uh, in fact, it's the most recent win that we have. We actually have an opportunity to automate thousands of gas wells in the mid-Atlantic area. And what's interesting, Jeff, is that historically, the large oil and gas wells have been automated. But the low production wells, and I mean low production as really low production, these are wells that produce less than two barrels of oil a day, are monitored manually. People are sent once or twice a month to measure the readings and see if the tank is full. Because if the tank is full, you have to send a truck. And if the tank is not full, you have to send somebody again. And it's a very expensive operation. So what the Internet of Things has done to the industrial markets is now it's the ability to bring the benefits of modern web services to low-valued assets. And I think that's a very exciting thing to happen. Industrial IoT and these assets are what we'll be exploring today's conversation. Welcome to the Knowledge Institute podcast, where we talk with thought leaders on business trends, deconstruct main ideas, and share their insights. I'm Jeff Cavanaugh, head of the Infosys Knowledge Institute. And today we're here with Dr. Prakash Chakravarti. Prakash is founder and CEO of MacFu, a company focused on the Industrial Internet of Things, or IoT, simplifying connectivity from edge to enterprise. He's also a successful serial entrepreneur. Prior to founding MacFu, Prakash founded multiple IoT and machine-to-machine businesses, including Ecosystems, a smart grid connectivity company that was later acquired by Cooper Industries. Prakash's formal training includes a PhD in electrical engineering from Syracuse, an executive MBA from MIT, and bachelor's degrees in electrical engineering from Berlin Institute of Technology and Science. Prakash, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, excited to jump in on several fronts. Before we do, just to give some context, can you mention your journey or how you came to be CEO of MacFu? My entrepreneurial journey began in 2001. At that time, a partner of mine who was actually in Japan, in Toshiba Research Labs, he and I decided that uh, we would found a company in the United States. He was very entrepreneurial. I had similar interests. And at that time, we saw that the internet was becoming very big with people. We thought to ourselves, well, if the internet is becoming big with people, it's just a matter of time before it becomes big with machines and in the industrial markets. And so we decided to found a company that focused on machine-to-machine communication at that time. We went into the automated meter reading markets primarily because energy was a, a big issue at that time. There was a lot of talk about the nation's energy needs being unmet, demand not being able to meet exceeding supply and so on. But we were 10 years ahead of our time. I mean, the markets never really took off as predicted, but we still continued on, eventually raised a fair bit of capital and sold ecosystems to Cooper Industries, which is now part of Eaton Corporation. Before you go any further, it's an interesting point. People think it's a compliment to be saying, oh, you're ahead of your time. But if you're 10 years ahead of your time, how do you hang in there or stay with it? Because no one's there with you yet as far as a market. It's very tough, Jeff. And I think uh, we went through a lot of difficult times. And I, I think that's when I realized that when you talk about a moment of truth, uh, that's when it dawns on you that when you go through some very difficult times, it's the people around you that make all the difference. I mean, the team that uh, five of us, we, when we founded ACA, we are still together after 20 years. 20 years. And it's been a long journey together. We've been through a lot, uh, many years of not taking enough money home. <laughs> but I mean, that's when you realize that if, you know, if the right people are with you and you have the same goal and the same ideals, then I think magic can happen. Once you got past that point, created a company, got it to a certain level, you sold it. What next? Well, after ACA, we actually founded a consulting company, Captiva, because we still realized that it was still a little ahead. I mean, um, the perfect storm was not in place yet. What I mean by a perfect 
context, Tom, is that if you look at today, there is falling hardware prices. There is falling software prices. Cloud has made it very easy. There are many open source software available, many tools available in the market to create powerful solutions. So what we did was we ran a consulting company and provided, a, I would say, for Fortune 500 customers. We worked with GE and several other companies. But eventually we got back into the products game because that's the DNA of the team. And the perfect storm, we realized, was now starting. And so that's when we jumped back into the Mark IV journey. And it's been very exciting for the last five years. Well, the burning question, I'm sure, has to be, how did you come up with Makfu? Yeah, that's an interesting story. We founded Makfu in 2015, and my daughter was 10 years old at the time, and we wanted to name the company. So I asked my daughter, and she asked me a very simple question, what is it that you do? So uh, I told her, we connect machines through phones. So she said, why don't you just name it Mashifo, machine to phone, machine phone. So I brought it over to my CTO and said, hey, what do you think of Mashifo? He thought about it for some time and said, well, I could put a double play on it. He shortened it to Mark Fu. So he said, Mark, his speed and Fu, his skill, like in Kung Fu. So uh, it had a, you know, two meanings to it. And we thought it was a good name. Well, a couple of points there. One, you probably owe your daughter a royalty of some kind. I'm sure she, at some point she'll, she'll ask for that. Well, actually, she's <laughs> quite disappointed that we changed the name <laughs> that she, she gave. Uh, <laughs> the other, it, it also sheds some light into innovation and starting from scratch on something, how you can ricochet with ideas and where it can end up. And it is interesting as well, because about speed, another part of Kung Fu, if you look at the Bruce Lee, you know, be like water, my friends, and all that is that ability to be very responsive. And if you think about it, that's the role you're playing is you're connecting and helping those machines be responsive and connecting to the boardroom. Yeah. And we had many years of experience, right, in the industrial markets. I mean, we had worked across multiple verticals, utilities, industrials, rail, transportation, oil and gas, building automations, and so on. And we knew what the pressing problems were and why historically the, the market never scaled, what the barriers were, what the customer pain points are. Are. And we thought if you could bring speed and skill into the play with the right combination of technologies, that would be a big contribution to the space. For the benefit of some listeners, and more importantly, just to get your perspective on it, can you go into maybe a, a concept of industrial IoT? How is it different than the Internet 1.0? Now that you're talking about machines and also for the corporate executive or director, what's special about it that's going to make the impact for enterprises? That's a very good question. And it's very subtle. I mean, I get asked this a lot. It's so IoT is there. I mean, I have Nest at home. Fitbit connects to my computer. So what's the big deal? It is a big deal and it's subtle and it's not easily recognized. Is the fact that, you know, if I tell you I can set the temperature of my home from New York, you get it right very quickly. And how does it really happen if you think about it? You, you have an app on the phone. It could be a temperature control app or it could be a banking app. You literally press the button. You open the app. You choose what you want. You choose, you know, if you want to go to a wire transfer, Transfers, you go there. If you want to check your deposit, you go there. You type the numbers in. So I, I think in the consumer world, you know, you don't realize how much a human being participates in the IoT to make it happen. So I think the fundamental difference in the industrial side is that machines cannot, they cannot participate by pressing things and choosing and configuring things the way they want. It all has to be done as though a human being is doing it. And that's a very complex operation, requires complex algorithms, complex software, complex technologies. And that's why industrial IoT is a far more complex um, beast than the consumer side of things. Now, but if you're able to do it, you get the same value. I mean, the value of modern web services in terms of efficiency, in terms 
terms of remote management, remote configuration, remote diagnostics. You don't have to go to the field. You don't have to send a box truck to a distribution line to check a transformer or a cab bank. A field worker can look at it, you know, sitting in McDonald's and they're having a coffee during a break. I mean, the power of modern web services brought to an industry that's, uh, I don't know, has $10 trillion in assets employed just in the United States alone across different verticals. So the value is tremendous in terms of efficiency, in terms of sustainability and what can be done, the data. Growing up on a farm and being in hundreds of manufacturing sites in my own career, what I find most glamorous is the unglamorous nature of what you're connecting to and where these devices are often placed. Those three Ds of dull, dangerous and dirty are where a lot of these remote operations are. Can you comment on how this maybe non-stereotypical high-tech application actually plays out? Because usually you think of all the cool internet and AI types of things in these nice, sterile office environments or, or semiconductor. What's it like out there where, where things are a little messier? Yeah, I mean, I can go back to our the latest project. There is a well, say, in Pennsylvania that produces uh, two barrels of oil a day. So at the today's rates, that's like $100 in revenues per day. So in in a year, it's about $36,000 in revenues. Now, you still have to send somebody once a month, monitor and empty the tanks and so on. So they spend roughly about $200 per visit. What that means is that 10% of the revenues are consumed just in operations. And that doesn't include maintenance and so on. Now, if you're able to automate it with pressure sensors and tank level sensors and flow sensors and uh, use the cloud as a back end, there's a tremendous savings in cost. And, you know, as unexciting as it may be, it gives a return on investment within the first two years. Once again, you're listening to the Knowledge Institute, where we talk with experts on business trends, deconstruct main ideas, and share their insights. We're here with Dr. Prakash Chukravarti, CEO of MacFu, an expert in industrial IoT. As you're discussing this, a lot of it has to do with the oil patch or the some sort of remote assets. What are some other industries where you've seen application for this? Well, I think it's all of it, right? We are young now and we are focused on the oil and gas markets, but we do have customers in this utility markets as well as in uh, industrial automation. So uh, in the utility markets, there's a, a need for uh, detecting faults. I mean, that's one of the big applications. If a fault on a line means that voltage or the current exceeds a certain bound, could be an upper bound or a lower bound. So even until recently, as five years ago, uh, utilities would actually send folks to a substation and there would be different crews that walk on each lateral feeder to see where the fault is. And now there are new sensors that come up that can, through smart algorithms, figure out where the faults are. And automating all these things has a very big application because utilities set rates, the public utilities set rates depending upon various metrics, such as SIDI and SIFI and so on, which essentially relate to how much outage is there, what is the frequency of the outage, what's the duration of the outage, and so on. So it's a very big application, and it can play a big role there in terms of reliable electricity. And another example would be in the industrial side. On factory floors, there's a tremendous number of rotating equipment, as you know, pumps, valves, motors, and so on. And uh, to predict their failures means that there's a tremendous cost things to the companies that own and use them. So vibration sensors are used to monitor machine signatures. If As they age and as they are closer to failure, they put out certain signatures that they don't normally put out. And we are working with a customer to monitor the machines for failures. And that's a very big application as well. If you're a director, vice president out there, and you're excited about this, but you're having difficulty in getting it funded, what are some of the more exciting things that you can convey or maybe 
ideas you can give to someone to get these projects funded so they can start seeing these benefits? That's, you know, to be candid with you, that's always a challenge. I would say this, look at all the benefits that web services is bringing to consumers. You don't even have to leave your home. I mean, you can order your furniture online. I mean, you can order your food online. You can even order a car online now. You don't even have to leave your home. I mean, that's how powerful modern web services is. And just imagine the level of efficiency and benefits it can bring to the industrial world. I, I would tell them that, you know, it's it's very similar. Start with the pilot. And often I think some the progressive ones do start as a pilot, but it doesn't go beyond that for a particular reason because a lot of them see the benefits and then they talk to a company or they identify a group of companies and pick one and do a pilot. But the reality is that things change very fast. I mean, if you look at how much that not just the communications, but the world itself has changed in the last 20 years, you have to plan, say I'm solving a certain problem today and a new problem comes. Have I deployed technologies that can adapt to that? For example, you may have a smartphone that you bought to talk, but then you want a banking app, all you do is download the banking app. So, you know, even though that was not the original intent, it's the same thing that you're using later to solve a different problem. And I think many of these pilots fail because they deploy technologies that don't anticipate the emerging problems and then they find that, oh, I've got to redo it all over again. So the first effort would be to convince them or have them believe that web services is a big benefit for the industrial markets. And the second effort would be to, once you want to pilot, pilot technologies that are expandable in the future. You and I have talked earlier and you know, while conventional wisdom glorifies analytics, analytics, analytics everywhere, you've expressed some reservations about Bunley following it. C can you give some perspective on that? Yeah. And I mentioned this uh, to other folks before. Uh, it's like the joke that goes, the marketing firm, after doing a lot of data analysis, concludes that everybody who buys a left shoe also buys a right shoe. So we actually have a practical example with this. We were doing a project for a large utility in Asia, a water utility, and they supplied us with data on their water pipe breaks because they wanted us to predict future failures. They wanted to know where it would occur. So it's very common for people to, you know, once the failure occurs to go and fix them. But if you want to predict them in advance, it's a very hard problem. So it turned out that, you know, over a few years time period that many of the failures that occurred occurred outside odd numbered homes. And to a human being, this would come across as a simple coincidence and you would just dismiss it. But if you feed it to a pure analytics platform, it would actually conclude that you need to put more resources and send people odd numbered homes because that's where the pipe bursts are likely to occur in the future. So I, I think that data analytics is a field that is going to grow in the future. I have no doubt about that. But you've got to be very careful because it's very easy to come with wrong results as often as you come up with the right results. You spend a lot of time out in the field talking with people, both venture capitalists as well as clients, and investigating the future. What What is a trend that's coming up that gets you most excited about the future in industrial IoT? Well, industrial IoT is at a very early stage. I think people are just beginning to realize the benefits of connecting the device to the cloud. So we still have a very long way to go. And that itself is very exciting, the fact that it started. And there's so much distance to cover. But if you look at some of the emerging trends that I would say no one's talking about today. Today, the excitement is all about the value in connecting the device to the cloud. But the true power of the internet was you were able to connect anything to anything, anybody to anybody. So when machines start talking to machines, so in other words, a temperature sensor can tell the AC unit, turn it up or turn it down without having to go to the cloud and having somebody else decide what should be done. That's the direction in which it would eventually go to. If you're an executive listening, what are the three things you can provide them to get a project going or it's stalled perhaps to, to make it successful? What, what, what advice would you give somebody out there? At this time, I would say that there is a lot of technology in place to do it right. I think the benefits in many cases have been shown. The mistake that's often made is not so much that 
they don't deploy the solution to solve the problem they have in hand but more often they pick technologies that are not scalable and expandable i would say that that's probably what i would tell the executives that if you can pick the right technologies that are scalable and expandable what i mean by that is that once you've solved a certain problem a new thing comes up and very often the new thing is very hard to subsume them in the, the old solution and that's where i think a lot of the companies get stuck and i would tell the executives that i think the right combination of technologies are in place as standards we've come a very long way maybe if you imagine the industrial world 30 or 40 years ago i mean it's all legacy the protocols that were used to communicate to the machines predated the internet so they were never designed for either networking or for security and those are the protocols that are still being used today and there are just so many of them it's a very complex market people often tell me that hey i have this machine that speaks modbus and i have other machine that speaks modbus why can't they just talk to each other there are two chinese speakers i mean one may speak mandarin and another may speak cantonese and not be able to understand each other and it's exactly the same for machines i mean it's uh, just having them communicate to each other is a very complex problem and uh, m- many of those problems have been addressed today and so i think um, the kind of revolution that happened in the consumer space and in the enterprise world a lot of it technologies can be brought to bear in the industrial markets you mentioned in passing cybersecurity is a big thing these days a lot, a lot of justified concerns about it and sometimes people think that IoT is a point of failure that often isn't addressed when people think about cybersecurity what's your take on the best way to approach to make sure that you're still are safe whenever you you connect all these devices up Yeah I think that the best way to do it is to bake it in instead of bolting it on very often I think vendors and companies uh, bolt on security after the fact and that always uh, leaves a hole but if you bake it in like what we do with uh, enterprise IT these days I think you're far more secure and I think we have the mechanisms to do that today taking a very mock foo specific approach what is it that you've tried to do to ingrain in, in your product and in your company that's different or distinct from maybe the way others have approached this theory of IoT so two things uh, one we touched on just now uh, we baked in security right from the get go security is baked into all aspects of a system so in a typical communication system there's a seven layer model where you go all the way from the physical layer to the application layer so we implement security at every layer of the model and the second approach is to have a sandboxed application platform i mean uh, we've been very very uh, diligent about it making the application platform very similar to your android phone or iphone where you can create new applications just by downloading them it's as easy as that historically as you know the embedded world was a monolithic world So if you had to change one aspect of something you have to change everything about it. So we've created a sandbox paradigm which makes it easy to bring about new applications. That's important if experimentation is important to be able to continue to to uh, try new things. Well, I know your 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 time is important and you'll need to get going here shortly. Who or what has been a major influence on you? What what what's guided you all these years? Well, I would say two people play played a big role in my life. My father is one of them. He was uh, of course in India and um, in a very socialist system but i i think he was an entrepreneur at heart and i think i got his genes uh, he did a lot of innovative things in a socialist environment in spite of uh, it being an environment like that he was very determined and i learned a lot from that the other person has been my phd advisor professor don weiner although i, I was in electrical engineering uh, what he really taught me was how to think as opposed to he, i think he taught me how to think more than he taught me electrical engineering i mean the the process of starting from a basic set of facts and some assumptions how to methodically work to conclusions is something that i've prized i think that's the best thing a teacher can teach a student yeah amen how could people find you online well we are on twitter it's at markfo iot 
we have a LinkedIn page and they can always reach me by emailing me at prakash at markford.com. You can find details on our show notes and transcripts at emphasis.com forward slash IKI in our podcast section. Prakash, thank you for your time and a very interesting discussion. Everyone, you've been listening to the Knowledge Institute, where we talk with experts on business trends, deconstruct main ideas and share their insights. Thanks to our producer, Catherine Burdett and Dode Bigley and the entire Knowledge Institute team. Until next time, keep learning and keep sharing.